welcome to the History and Philosophy of Physics podcast. I'm Tegan Phillips. This is episode 11, Mix and Mingle Like Nothing is Single. This episode is about Anaxagoras of Clazomenae. Like Empedocles, I wasn't initially planning on discussing Anaxagoras, but when I was looking through my books to plan this second season of the podcast, I decided that he was worth an episode. However, I'm sure some of you will be happy to hear that Anaxagoras is the last pre-Socratic philosopher I'm intending to cover. Full stop. There are others, like Protagoras and Xenophanes, and some works on the pre-Socratics also include people like Hesiod and Hippocrates, but their works are in areas really unrelated to early Greek physics, interesting as they might be. They are covered in other podcasts, which take a more complete look at Greek philosophy, like the history of philosophy without any gaps. After this episode, I will be staying in ancient Greece a little longer. I want to at least get through Aristotle before I consider changing course to look at the origins of physics and physical theory in other places and times. All in good time, my dear listeners. First, though, let's talk about Anaxagoras. Anaxagoras was probably born around the year 500 BCE, which means he was roughly a contemporary of Empedocles and Leucippus. Aristotle says that Anaxagoras was older than Empedocles, but later in his philosophical activity, and there is some evidence to suggest that Anaxagoras might have been aware of and influenced by Empedocles' work, which I discussed in the last episode. Anaxagoras was from Clazomenae, a Greek port city on the coast of Ionia, north of Ephesus and Miletus. Anaxagoras is not to be confused with two of the earlier Ionian philosophers, Anaximander and Anaximenes. Those two were from Miletus and lived roughly a century before Anaxagoras. Unlike the other Anaxonamed philosophers, Anaxagoras left Ionia as a young adult to live and teach in Athens. That city would soon become the center of learning and philosophy in the Greek world, boasting headliners like Socrates and Plato. Diogenes Laertius wrote that Anaxagoras was from an aristocratic family, but abandoned his inheritance to study philosophy. The rebel. Anaxagoras lived in Athens for 20 or 30 years, according to most accounts. He seems to have been part of the intellectual circle of the Athenian general and statesman Pericles, and his life in Athens may have ended because of this association. Anaxagoras was brought to trial on a charge of impiety based on some of what he taught about the nature of the heavenly bodies and astronomical phenomena. However, this charge and trial may have been influenced by some of Pericles' political opponents. Anaxagoras was ultimately either banished from Athens, or left to protect himself from further accusations and punishments, like the death penalty. He went to Lampsacus, where he died. Lampsacus was in the Hellespont region of Asia Minor, a little northeast of Troy. Anaxagoras was still living in Athens when Socrates was young, but there are no reports that they met. Socrates makes some remarks about Anaxagoras and his theories in Plato's dialogue Phaedo, which I'll get to later in the podcast, but the way Plato wrote it supports the idea that Socrates never met Anaxagoras and came to know of him after hearing someone reading from Anaxagoras' book. Athens was a pretty large city, even then, 
and like I mentioned before, this was before Athens became the center of philosophy it would be later on in the lifetime of Socrates, and then in the times of Plato and Aristotle. Anaxagoras reportedly wrote one book, but of course, all we have is fragments. A lot of the fragments we have were recorded by Simplicius in the 16th century CE, working from earlier texts which are now lost. The book apparently started with Anaxagoras's cosmology, his theory of the original state of the universe, and how it became the universe we know today, or rather, the universe he knew in 5th century BCE Greece. Anaxagoras is best known for what seems to have formed a significant part of the rest of the book, his theory of the mind or intellect, called nous. Nous wasn't just the human mind. For Anaxagoras, it was something much bigger, infinite, in fact. Commentaries on the book and Anaxagoras's work also tell us that he made records of some astronomical, meteorological, and geological phenomena, and that he wrote about perception and knowledge. Anaxagoras was the first to give a correct explanation of eclipses, and he suggested that the sun is made of red-hot metal, the stars are similarly fiery stones, and that the moon had physical similarities to Earth. Philosophically, he seems to have been influenced primarily by the earlier Milesians, following the tradition of observing and explaining nature via physical or natural principles, rather than divine ones. He was also influenced by the Eleatics, led by Parmenides, of course. So again, we see in Anaxagoras's work a continuation of many of the themes of the past few episodes, but approached in a rather different way. Like Empedocles and the Atomists, Anaxagoras had some issues with Parmenides' theory, but he accepted the idea that nothing is created or destroyed. In his words, the Greeks are accustomed to speak of coming into being and passing away, but mistakenly, for nothing comes to be or passes away. There is only a mingling and separation of what is. It would be more correct, therefore, to call coming into being mingling and passing away separation. All right, well, this is sounding very familiar, and Anaxagoras's near contemporaries, Empedocles and the Atomists, would agree. The difference is basically what they take to be the fundamental constituents or the nature of matter. What, when we get right down to the smallest level possible, is everything in our universe made of? The atomists thought it was atoms. Empedocles thought it was the four elements of earth, air, water, and fire. And Anaxagoras had his own theory. When asked, what is everything made of? Anaxagoras answered, everything. This isn't a way of avoiding the question. It was a genuine theory sometimes called the homoeomeria of things. It's based on the idea that things are made up of smaller things which have the same nature. So, fire is made of small bits of fire, bread is made of small bits of bread, gold of small grains of gold, and so on and so forth. Basically, there is a fundamental building block for everything, like millions of different kinds of particles, each unique to a certain kind of object or material. These building blocks are eternal, they can't be created or destroyed, and they form the stuff we can see, feel, etc., as well as ourselves, by coming together in large quantities. 
Now, Anaxagoras' theory was a bit more complicated, because it becomes clear pretty quickly that there's a problem with this idea. If something like bread is just made up of little microscopic bits of bread, then how can we grow flesh, blood, hair, and all the other components of humans by eating bread? Bread is bread, not fingernails, thankfully. Since nothing can be created from something that is not, eating bread should just make us become part bread. A very literal take on you are what you eat. Clearly, we are not mutant bread people, or lettuce people, or ugh, oatmeal people. My veins don't actually flow with Earl Grey. Anaxagoras recognized this general problem and said, This being so, we must agree that all existing things are in the nourishment that is taken in, and that by these everything is increased. There exist in the nourishment portions, of which some are productive of blood, others of sinews, others of bones, and so on these portions being perceptible to reason. I don't know about you, but I feel like Anaxagoras is just digging himself into a deeper hole here. There are small bits of all things in everything we eat and drink, but we can only perceive them through reason, and that's because we can see that we grow or maintain ourselves by eating and drinking. So, since we are clearly not mutant food people, our food is fundamentally mutant people food. Our bread actually has little bits of blood, bone, hair, etc. in it. Just because we can't observe the little people bits doesn't make this a good solution, Anaxagoras. Regardless, Anaxagoras wasn't only concerned with explaining nutrition and growth. Rather, this idea of everything being in everything was his way of reconciling the principle that nothing can come into being or be destroyed with what we can observe with our senses. The change of food into human growth is probably only one example that Anaxagoras had in mind. Alright, fine. So now we've got this weird muddle where in everything there is a portion of everything. This means that there's basically an infinite number of things, sort of like fundamental particles, but that's a very loose analogy, and I'll touch on it more in a minute. Each individual object, then, like the speaker through which you're listening to this podcast, has basically an infinite number of things in it. Just think, an infinity of bits of rose, bird feather, glitter, cat, and so much more squeezed into a tiny space inside your headphones or computer. But shouldn't an infinity of material things, however small, result in something that's infinitely large? We saw this kind of problem pointed out by Zeno of Elea. If we were to divide something in half, like a loaf of bread or a race course, and then in half again and again and again many more times, either you reach a point where you can't divide stuff anymore, which is the position the atomists took, or you can spend the rest of infinity dividing this stuff, which is the position Anaxagoras took. He argued that there will always be something smaller. This means there is an infinite number of things in every object, but the object doesn't need to be a certain size to contain them because they are infinitely small and effectively take up no space. Since the portions of the great and the small are equal in number, so too would all things be in everything. 
nor is it possible for any to exist apart, but all things have a portion of all. Since it is impossible that there should be a smallest part, it is unable to be separated or come to be by itself, but as it was in the beginning, now too all things are together. In all things there are many things. Everything is everywhere at all times. To clarify, this is not a particle theory. I've used words like particles or little bits of matter for simplicity mainly, but Anaxagoras would have objected to this. He was not an atomist, or even an elementist like Empedocles. For Anaxagoras, the constituents of matter are infinitely small, so they have no volume and take up no space. It's not wholly clear if they are still material or are somehow immaterial like Plato's famous forms, but I'm inclined to think Anaxagoras thought of them as being material things, so they have a real existence and can be physically moved and consumed as part of a human-scale object, to return to the example of food. Instead of particles, some people suggest thinking of it more like a fluid filling the universe. It's everywhere and always has the same constituents or ingredients, just all mixed together. Some spots have an increased amount or concentration of a particular constituent, but they still have a blend of all the others. What we see as creation or growth is then a partial separation, where the concentration of one kind of thing increases in a certain area. Objects or areas which have a greater amount of one kind of thing, like the plant stuff in my plant, are named after what that stuff is. So even if deep down everything is made of the same intermingled goo, objects at our level of perception appear to be different from one another and are referred to by different names. But Anaxagoras thought that even though I call my plant a plant and it's made up more of plant than of anything else, it's not pure plant. It's got a little bit of every kind of matter inside it. This principle of homoeomeria, everything in everything, is one of the core principles underlying Anaxagoras' scientific theory. It naturally led to a cosmology, wherein the original state of the universe was an even mixture of all things. This undifferentiated blob was still, it had no motion, so nothing was separating or coming together. It was like a perfectly tranquil lake. Our world today is not like a perfectly tranquil lake. There's lots of things moving and changing all the time and everywhere. So something else was needed outside of the mixture of matter to make this goo start moving and changing into the world we know and love. Anaxagoras recognized that he needed an exception to the homoeomeria principle to have any hope of providing a reasonable explanation of how the world came to be. He called this exception nous, often translated as mind or intellect. Other things have a share of everything, but mind is infinite and self-ruled and not mixed with anything, but is alone by itself. For it is the finest of all things and the purest, and it has all knowledge concerning all things and the greatest power and over everything that has soul, large or small, mind rules. This isn't quite mind or intellect like we think of it with people. In a way, it's similar, but on a cosmic scale. 
Noose has some control over the movement of matter in the universe, just as our thoughts or minds have some control over the movements of our bodies. However, the way Anaxagoras applies the concept of noose is perhaps more akin to the forces of love and strife Empedocles used in his theory. Noose set the universe in motion, so from the homogeneous mixture of everything came the formation of objects dominated by one type of thing. Stars, trees, penguins. Mind controlled the whole rotation so that it rotated in the beginning, and at first it began to rotate from a small beginning, but now it rotates over a larger area and it will rotate over a still larger area, and mind knows all the things that are mingled and separated out and distinguished, and what sort of things were to be and what sort of things were which no longer are, and what now is, and what sort of things will be. All these mind arranged, and the rotation in which now rotate the stars and the sun and the moon and the air and the ether that are being separated off. Basically, this mind caused motion to enter the universe. It made stuff start rotating, and the rotational movement makes certain types of matter separate out, as we saw with cosmic vortex motion and a couple of other theories discussed earlier in the podcast. The same thing is happening here, except Anaxagoras doesn't think anything is able to separate out completely. In time, the world order forms with the earth and air and the sun and stars orbiting or rotating around. Noose has power and control based on its knowledge of all things, but, to be clear, Anaxagoras doesn't say that Noose is a conscious being, or any kind of being at all. It's not a god or some divine engineer. There's actually a number of reports which allege that Anaxagoras was an atheist. So, this is not a theological theory. It's a metaphysical one, and physical, because this Noose brings about the mechanical forces we can observe which affect the things in our universe. Noose is an ultimate explanation, but it doesn't seem that Anaxagoras really explained the how or why of it. His theory certainly wasn't satisfactory for Socrates, as according to Plato in his dialogue Phaedo, Socrates said, One day I heard someone reading from a book which he said was by Anaxagoras, saying that mind is the disposer of all things and the cause of them. I was delighted with this, it seemed somehow right that mind should be the cause of all things, and I thought that if this were the case, then mind, in arranging all things, would arrange each in the way that was best for it, so that if anyone wished to discover the cause of the generation or destruction or existence of each thing, the question to ask was, how is it best for it to be or to be acted on or to act? I assumed that having assigned the cause of each thing and of things in general, he would go on to state what is best in each case and what is good for the whole. I would not have sold my hopes for a great deal, but in great haste I secured the book and read it as quickly as I could, so as to know as soon as possible the better and the worse. My fine hopes, my friend, were quickly dashed. As I went on with my reading I found that the man made no use of his mind, and that he did not credit it with any real responsibility for the arrangement of things, but mentioned as causes air and ether and water and many other absurdities. 
The reason why Anaxagoras didn't rely on noose or mind as much for explaining the arrangement of things was because he allowed that the vortex motion of the universe does a lot of that work. It moves around and separates things. This notion of a cosmic vortex motion first appeared in the work of Anaximander, and you may recall that it was an important part of the theory of the atomists as well. Anaxagoras used vortex motion to explain not only large-scale phenomena, like the relative positions of the Earth, Moon, Sun, and stars, but small-scale phenomena, like the creation of humans. So, the noose sets in motion the vortex, which causes the separation of all things, as far as is possible given there's a little of everything mixed into everything. That, I believe, is the big picture of Anaxagoras's work. Now, what about some of the more scientific observational details? I mentioned earlier on in this episode that Anaxagoras recorded and explained some astronomical, geological, and meteorological phenomena, so let's talk a bit about his observational science. Anaxagoras was a flat earther. He thought that the earth was still and at the center of the cosmos, held up by air, rather like a giant leaf floating on a puddle. The air under the earth is confined and is therefore able to resist the pressure caused by the weight of the earth and hold it up. The air is also moving because of the rotational vortex and can get stuck in some crevices on the underside of the earth. When this happens, we experience earthquakes as the air forces itself out of the earth and back into its regular motion. The sun, Anaxagoras thought, is a mass of red-hot stone or metal, and much larger in size than the Peloponnese region of Greece. Clearly, if the sun is stone or metal, then it is not a divine being. This may have been one of the claims or teachings of Anaxagoras which formed the basis of his charge of impiety and his trial. The moon, he thought, has an earthy nature and has plains and ravines, which accounts for some of the features we can observe on the moon. According to Hippolytus, a bishop of Rome in the 3rd century CE, Anaxagoras was the first to set forth the facts concerning eclipses and illuminations, that it is the sun that gives the moon its brilliance, and so the moon is eclipsed when the earth comes between them, because the earth will cast a shadow on the moon. This implies that eclipses have no potential or divine significance. They're purely physical phenomena, another somewhat impious claim. The stars, Anaxagoras said, have their own light because they are flaming masses of rock. However, their light is overpowered when rays from the sun shine on them. When the sun passes under the earth, we can see the light of the stars because they are in shadow. We don't feel any heat from them, though, because they are very far from the earth, and not as hot as the sun, anyway. The stars are held up in the heavens by the force of the rotation of the cosmos. Sometimes, though, they can slip or break away from this motion. Then, they are naturally drawn to the center of the universe, being composed of heavy rock, and they fall to the earth as meteorites like one that fell in the Hellespont region in the year 467 BCE. Anaxagoras' scientific claims and discoveries, 
such as the cause of lunar and solar eclipses, became widely known and changed ancient Greeks' understanding of these phenomena. And Aristotle, even though, like Socrates, he wasn't satisfied with Anaxagoras's use or underuse of nous as a causal principle, he still liked the idea and treated Anaxagoras's explanation of eclipses as a model of scientific explanation. Anaxagoras also wrote a bit about biology, why humans are the wisest of animals, and what death is, the separation of soul from the body. He may also have written or said some things about how to lead a good life. According to Aristotle, they say that when Anaxagoras was asked why anyone should wish to be born rather than not, he answered, in order to contemplate the heaven and the structure of the world order as a whole. So, there you go. Another interesting thing to note, if you're a fan of theatre and drama like me, is that Euripides, one of the three great tragedians of ancient Greece, is said to have studied philosophy under Anaxagoras. Ancient Greek theatre was the origin of the Western theatrical tradition, which is essentially most of the drama and theatre of English-speaking countries. Euripides was one of the exemplary dramatists of early Greek tragedy, and his works are still studied and occasionally performed today. Alright, well that wraps up our discussion of the pre-Socratics. The next episode should be out in a few weeks, and until then, remember that you can check out the website for the podcast at historyandphilosophyofphysicspodcast.ca, follow the podcast on Facebook or Twitter, just search at histphilphyspod, and you can send me an email at histphilphyspod at gmail.com. Take care, everybody!